0: Thank you, Jeanetta. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter uh, 1. Uh, As you're making your way uh, to Mark 1, I'm just so grateful for Jason Douglas and Sarah and creating and crafting this space uh, where uh, we can be developed as Christ followers, as stewards uh, of the people of God in this uh, section uh, of of his vineyard. you, you young preachers, don't, don't judge me on what's about to happen. I would not say that what, um, what we're about to do the next half hour or so together is a good model for preaching. Uh, I, I have preached homiletics before, and I would grade myself with an F um, just based on uh, kind of what this is, and I don't even know what genre to put this in, uh, but I just want to uh, look at the life of Jesus and offer up some thoughts. Maybe that is preaching. Uh, The more I think about it. Uh, What's interesting is uh, I first put this talk together uh, seven years ago for a friend of mine uh, named Eric who's doing a ministry leaders conference. I was so excited to get it and uh, I'm sitting there um, ready to give this talk and the spirit of God tells me not to do it and I do something else and I haven't touched it since. Uh, So this thing's been incubating uh, for seven years and uh, so when Jason uh, asked me to be a part of this Uh, I've made some significant modifications to it, but I just say that to say this is a scene in the life of Jesus that I have been incredibly drawn to uh, just in my own personal walk with Christ. I want you to pick me up uh, in verse uh, 12 of Mark chapter 1, and then we'll jump to verse 21. Verse 12, Mark chapter 1, Mark writes, the Spirit, this is Mark's favorite word, immediately, drove him out into the wilderness, speaking of Jesus. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Jump to verse 21. And they went to Capernaum home, and immediately, there's that word again, on the Sabbath, uh, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And here's that word again, verse 29, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all, all, all who were sick, were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many, many, many who were sick, various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Rising very, very early in the morning, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. for That is why he came out, and he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogue and casting out demons. God, may I be a source of encouragement to um, to my sisters and brothers who are here, um, God, we are all in this journey of sanctification together. We are not what we shall be, but we are grateful that those whom you have justified, declared righteous, you will glorify. What you start, you finish. So, Lord God, as we talk about spiritual formation. <laughs> And practices we can do, we do not do that devoid or detached from the one who does it. It's the Spirit of God pulsating through us. And yet, Lord God, we can't get rid of Paul's constant encouragements to put off, put on, put off, put on, put off, put on. We play a role in that. Give me great clarity. Inspire us to be more like you. In Jesus' name amen. One of my favorite um, uh, portraits is a uh, picture done by a guy by the name of Holman Hunt. You can go ahead and put it on the screen. It's, um, it's his classic, The Shadow of Death. There's so much going on in this picture, time does not really permit me to get into it. Um, here's Jesus at the end of a long day in his carpentry shop. And um, one of the things Holman Hunt is trying to depict it's kind of in the background, um, there is a shadow of a cross looming over the life of Jesus. Uh, what Holman Hunt, and he paints this in the late 1800s, what he's trying to communicate is just a solid biblical truth that we would all say yes and amen to, and that is the cross was an inescapable, ever-present reality that hovered over the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. Amen. But there's something else, I think, that Holman Hunt is showing us here. Here's Jesus. He's in his carpentry shop. Again, it's the end of another long day. He's exhausted. Now, I know, using the word exhausted attached to Jesus, we evangelicals, we kind of squirm at that, don't we? We? thing I love about my progressive friends is, man, they have a high view of the humanity of Jesus. They fall into error because they um, so elevate his humanity, they deny and diminish his deity. That's problematic. That's heresy. But, but I think we, we uh, evangelicals can have the reverse problem, where we so elevate his deity that we forget about his humanity. Need I remind us of that great statement taken from the Council of Chalcedon? Um, The hypostatic union that Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, in one person, without mixture. So we've got to hold these things incredibly in tension. What I want you to see is is that Holman Hunt is is spot on. That in his humanity, Jesus Christ got tired. We do see him sleeping in a boat in the middle of a storm. We see him expressing his emotions in John eleven thirty five 35, at the news of his friend Lazarus dying. He weeps. We see his humanity in full bloom on the cross, and he cries out, I, I thirst. Jesus Christ is fully human. Now, his humanity, parenthetically, it is not It is not patterned after fallen humanity. The reason why he's called the last Adam in the Bible is because just as Adam came into this world without a sin nature, Jesus Christ came into this world without a sin nature. That's why he's called the last Adam. Very careful and clear there. But nonetheless, in his humanity, he submitted himself to some very real voluntary limitations. And again, in his humanity, he got tired. It's exhausted. If we kind of did the score to Mark chapter 1, this this wouldn't be slow music that underscores the romantic parts of a a movie. No, this this is an action thriller. What I just read to you is one day in the life of Jesus. And boy, what a day it is. Jesus walks into the synagogue, unfolds the scroll and paints And preaches the paint off the wall. People are astonished at his teaching. By the way, uh, you budding preachers who are out there, they're astonished because he's teaching them as one who had authority. He's not just conversating or giving a talk. There's authority. I think our pulpits need more and more of that. Authority, conviction that what I am saying is not my truth, it is the truth. We're saying that as if our lives depend on it. Preach like you believe it. So he preaches there in the synagogue. They're astonished at his teaching. It's full of authority. And then their mouths drop even closer to the floor because there is a a demon-possessed man, and and Jesus Christ, without much fanfare, just kind of casts the demon out of him. Uh, No sooner does he do that than... Then Peter's like, hey, man, I really do need you to see my my mother-in-law. She's sick. Now, selfishly, this is just me reading the white spaces of our text. Um, I I think Peter selfishly is really wanting Jesus to heal his mother-in-law, not just because she's sick, but remember, this brother just quit his job, and uh, his mother-in-law is probably not too happy about that. So if she can see how bad Jesus is, then maybe she'll be okay with his decision. And so Jesus comes to the house, lays hands on her, heals her. Immediately she starts to serve him, and then word starts to get across town that, that Jesus is in residence, and the whole town seeks an audience with Jesus. And then the text says they're bringing all of these people who are sick and infirmed, and, and Jesus spends time just kind of laying his hands on them, caring for them, healing them, all this in one day. Now, let me just stop right here. I'm going to talk to you about margin and and the importance of rest and operating from a place of margin. But I want you to understand, we're going to look at Jesus, and there's a whole bunch of margin here. But before we get to his margin, let me just say this. What we see is a Jesus who works. He's exhausted. This This isn't a person who's just kind of lollygagging around. I mean, it's just one thing after another, after another, and after another. And I'm so grateful for this conversation on spiritual formation. I'm, uh, part of me is just kind of envious that, um, uh, that you all, who are much younger than, my, uh, than I am, are getting in on this uh, at the stage of life that you're in. Man, that's kind of not the, the, the world I grew up in. Like, you're talking to a guy who grew up in a home where my dad was out of town about 250 days out of the year. And so I just kind of grew up with kind of just this image. There's probably some unhealth to that. And so I'm so thankful for this conversation, but I want us to be careful because the leading voices in the conversation are these relaxed contemplatives. I mean, I love my buddy John Mark Homer. You listen to him speak, man. You just want to light some candles and turn the room down dark and just go into a perpetual state of chill. <laughs> That's not what ministry is. There's pockets of that, but those pockets are well earned. Jesus models. We work. Summer of 1995, I just graduated from college. Uh, one of the most formative times in my life, and uh, Dr. Tony Evans invited me to come down and um, and just do a summer internship with him. I actually, had plans on uh, going to Dallas Theological Seminary. Then I broke up with his daughter, and so I felt called to California, and. Um, a true story, by the way, and so we got down there, and uh, it, it was just kind of an amazing time. I remember one of my first days there, he, he used to always just call me Laritz, and uh, my job for him was to come up with 25 illustrations every single week for his sermons, uh, and then I found out that he came out with a book of illustrations and was wondering if I need to get some financial compensation there. Um, he didn't play Gerizzo. I know that's a big comment uh, going around now, but Here I am working with him, and uh, one of my first days there, he says, Loritz, come with me, and we hop on an airplane, and we fly to Kansas City, and we get off the plane and I'm with Dr. Evans and it's one meeting after another meeting after another meeting after another meeting after another meeting, after another meeting and I, I'm just kind of watching this onslaught and he's speaking into stuff and he's fundraising and, and then we go, straight, we go straight from the airport, meeting, 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 meeting straight to the church where he has to preach and, and we're sitting there and, and man, the, the choir is singing their B selection, the African American church, that means the last song they sing prior to the preacher coming and Dr. Evans is asleep. And I'm going, this ain't good. And all of a sudden, the choir ends. He gets on stage and destroys the place. Like, he never touched a note. Folk are running around the building. It's just unbelievable. And then we go to another meeting. And one of the things I just kind of saw is, yeah, ministry, there's, there's work involved here. There's work involved here it's just straight from the life of Jesus. What I want to talk to you today is something called pastoral ministry. People ask me all the time, how's it going at Summit? And um, I just I just love being here. I, I, I tell, tell people across the country, man, what a church. And one of the things I just name about Summit that I just love, and I've I've been around the block a few times, is I think our leadership culture here is unprecedented. It's not a perfect place. We get that. But, man, the emphasis on developing leaders, even in my own life, the sense in which I feel like I'm being pushed, I'm growing, I'm developing um, in unprecedented ways, it's just been so redemptive for me to be here. But like any other place, I think there's room for improvement. One of my concerns for Summit Church is I think... um, I think we have a ton of leaders, not enough pastors. And there's a difference. I don't want to really talk to you about leadership. I want to talk to you about pastoral ministry. Now, I I know some of you are thinking, well, Brian, that's not me, and I I work in, in this kind of other department, and we do kind of this random thing. Let me just remind you, we're all in the people business. It's all of us. I'm not talking about the title. I'm just talking, may we never forget, our product is people. We're all kind of called into this thing of connecting with and walking with people. This is what we're called into. I got a buddy of mine who says, pastoral ministry will find you out. Because the essence of pastoral ministry ain't here. It's here. Paul Tripp, I think this is from Dangerous Calling too, so it's just a Paul Tripp kind of day. He says these words, will you look at it with me? I personally experience what can happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets reduced to a series of Theological ideas coupled with all the skills necessary to access those ideas. Bad things happen when ministry is more defined by knowing than it is by being. Danger is afloat when you come to love the ideas more than the God whom they represent and the people they are meant to free. You can hide behind your head, you can't hide behind your heart. And what I'm learning, the older I get, is the sweetest kind of ministry it doesn't happen from a stage. It happens up close, connected, sharing lives. It's the essence of pastoral ministry, and that's what we're all called into. Now I think we're ready to ease into this spiritual formation Idea, this whole idea of spiritual formation and this idea of shaping and forming and readying the soul of our hearts to be poured out for others. Mulholland gives this classic definition of spiritual formation. I don't think it can be improved upon. Look at it with me. Mulholland says spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. Spiritual formation, if you get nothing else I say, it's it's the process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. In other words, your quiet time is not ultimately about your quiet time. It's about connecting into God the source of your life so that you might be poured out for other people. That's why it's important. I was with the great African-American preacher, Dr. Maurice Watson. If you've never heard him preach, man, tell the death angel to hold off until you can hear him preach. Go on YouTube. Just a legend. I had preached at his church once in Omaha, Nebraska, and we're out to eat. And I'll never forget. It's just, I don't even know how we got on this conversation, but he just kind of threw out there. He said, Brian, there's a series of sermons I've always wanted to preach on the life of Jesus called the Ministry of Interruptions. He says, Have you ever thought about this? Much of Jesus' ministry isn't planned for. It's not on his calendar. The bulk of his ministry is unscheduled. The bulk of his ministry is the ministry of interruptions. I mean, you read Matthew chapter 8, he just gets finished preaching the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mountain. He's coming down the mountain and up pops the leper. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he deals with the leper. Only a few moments later to get interrupted by an entourage that the centurion has sent out, just saying, hey, Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Shoot, one chapter later in Mark chapter two, we find Jesus teaching in a home and all of a sudden the roof opens up and a couple of guys lower, a paralytic, and Jesus is interrupted in the midst of his sermon and he deals with that. Another time he's teaching in a temple and the religious leaders in their self-righteousness, they drag a woman who's been caught in adultery. They interrupt him and he deals with that. The bulk of Jesus' ministry isn't on his Google Calendar. It's the ministry of interruptions. Now, a couple things. Parenthetically, what ministry are we missing out on because it's not on our Google Calendar? Some of us are too guarded, too scheduled to seize interruptions. The main thing I want to say to this is, if I really wanted to know your character, one of the main ways to get at that is to see how you ha- handle constant interruptions. If I wanted to know if, if there's impatience in your heart or, or unkindness in your heart, it's to constantly interrupt you. <laughs> Here's what's remarkable about Jesus. Interruption after interruption after interruption. He's on his way to go heal a a ruler of the synagogue's daughter, and a woman with an issue of blood touches. It's just uncanny. Not once do I see him being terse. Not once do I see him being unkind. Not once do I see him being impatient. Quite the opposite, full of compassion, joy, empathy. And I want that. Because we understand the nature of ministry is to be interrupted. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a week and I just kind of have a handle on the week. You know, I know what's going to happen and this sermon to prepare for and these meetings to be had and uh, th- this needs to be done and date night with my wife and time with the family only to have all that thrown out the window because, you know, someone gets sick and I need to go see them at the hospital and someone else dies and they want me to do the eulogy or I come home and Corey shows me an unexpected bill that wasn't planned for. Something happens with one of the kids. Just The nature of life is interruptions, and I want to take a page out of Jesus, and I want to meet that full of joy and empathy and compassion and kindness, not being terse, not interrupting, not being mean. I can't tell you how many regrets I have on the precipice of being an empty nester of the times I've snapped at my kids because I was operating from overload, not margin. And here we have it. Here's my question hermeneutic of suspicion. Jesus, how do you handle all of these interruptions? Like it's been a long day, and you get a knock on the door, and the whole town is there. How do you just run out there in patience and kindness, full of compassion and empathy, and know the answer is that, well, you know, He is God. I think there's something else here. Notice the bookends to our text. Our text starts 40 days in solitude, in prayer, in fasting. Notice how it is, how it ends. He then goes from that, deals with the people, and then his disciples are looking at him. They're looking for him. He's in a desolate place. In prayer, I think Jesus is able to operate in ministry with all of its demands from a heart full of kindness and joy and compassion and patience, not just because he's God in the flesh, but because he abides by the principle of margin. What is margin? If you haven't read Dr. Richard Swinson's book A Jesus-Loving Medical Doctor I commend it to you. It's a simple book called Margin. He defines margin as that space between your load and your limits. It's margin. Margin is that space between your load and your limits. Jesus and his humanity, the great kenosis passage, Philippians 2, he voluntarily limited aspects of his deity. When he put on the robe of humanity, Jesus embraced limitations. And he's constantly in the Gospels saying, That's enough for now. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to find margin. And it's out of that margin he's able to engage people fully with compassion and joy and empathy and kindness. There's been a couple times, man, I've been at the airport, and um, typically it happens to me in an early morning flight. This has probably happened to some of us. And uh, that bad boy's delayed, and it's, it's not delayed because of mechanical issues. It's not delayed because they're waiting on a plane to come in. It's, it's delayed, and, and these people actually have the nerve to say this because uh, the crew got in late the night before, and they haven't gotten their mandatory X amount of hours of rest. Isn't that something? The FAA mandates that you have to have X amount of hours of rest and sleep. It's as if they're saying, look. We're not questioning your competency, but there's a lot at stake here. We don't don't just want you to be competent. We want you to fly this plane literally out of a place of rest and margin. How much more so for us? How much more so for us? When when the the Bible says we don't just handle people's bodies, we, we, we give care to their souls. We have to come from a place of margin. What does this mean? Let me just give you three three things real quickly. If you're going to embrace margin in your life, you you have to, first of all, embrace your limitations. Margin demands embracing our limitations. Mark chapter 1 begins with John the Baptist, and we kind of See what's going on with him, and, and everybody's going out to John. And John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, um, in John's telling of the same events in our passage, uh, people start to ask him, are, are you the long-awaited Messiah? And I love this. John chapter 1 beginning verse 19 and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and levites from Jerusalem to ask him who are you I love this he confessed and did not deny but confessed I am not the Christ There's five words I think every one of us should have emblazoned upon the walls of our minds It are those it is those five words I am not the Christ Because the temptation of ministry is the gravitational pull towards meeting people's demands of omni-competence. What what do I mean by that? I was candidating for a church once uh, in the Bay Area and uh, sat down with the elders and I'm just a big believer. Let's just put it all out there. you know, the, the convictions that I have, I don't want to hide those in the hopes of getting a job. I, I just want to come through the front door. Um, and so I told the elders towards the end of our, one of our first in-person meetings together, I, I said, listen, I, I just need to say this. Uh, love this church. Love what's happening here. But if you're looking for omnicompetence, I'm not your guy. They said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, most search committees have an expectation for omnicompetence. They don't say this literally, but here's what they expect. Uh, I expect that this person is going to be able to preach the birds out of the trees every single Sunday. Uh, I expect that they're going to have a wonderful bedside manner and visit people in the hospital. I expect they're going to answer all of their emails and correspondence in a timely fashion. I expect that they're going to be an innovative, inspiring leader. I expect that they're going to lead the staff well. I expect that they're going to administrate well. Oh, I expect that they're going to have an exemplary marriage and exemplary kids to boot. That person doesn't exist. I am not the Christ. The most freeing day in your life in ministry happens when your soul rests in what John tells us. Not him. Because what happens, some of you all, God bless you, you think you can actually change people. And because you think you can actually change people, you begin to take on stuff God never called you to take on. When I understand I'm not the Christ, here's what that means. That frees me. I'm not responsible for your porn problem. I'm not responsible for your bad marriage. I'm not not called to be your social uh, coordinator. So when you come to me, talk about this, this is an unfriendly place, and I'm not responsible. We're adults here. I'm not responsible for your walk with Jesus. And what I do is I sit with you, I point you to the scriptures, I connect with you, I pray with you, but you're a big girl. You're a big boy. I'm not going to own your walk with Christ. I'm not the Christ. You'll never get to margin thinking you can function as the fourth member of the Trinity. Secondly, margin demands being comfortable disappointing people you'll never get to margin if you're a people pleaser I love it here's Jesus man chilling in the house just he's just laid hands on Peter's Uh, mother-in-law she's healed she's serving him knock on the door whole town's there and the text literally says they brought to him all who were sick and I love it and he healed the many you know what that means? Somebody got left out. Here's Jesus. He can, he can fix your issue. Like he doesn't even have to come out the house. He can blink an eye. Everybody's healed. And he comes out, and I just see a long line. Just kind of work your imagination with me. A long line of people, heal you, heal you, heal you, heal you, heal you. I'm good. That's it. Maybe there's a mother there with her disabled child. Maybe there's a middle aged man there with a severe limp. Maybe there's another man there who's been wrestling with severe mental illness, still in line. And Jesus says, I'm good. This is it. I'm calling it a night. I'm done. Setting a boundary. This is it. Eugene Peterson, there's a biography that came out on him a couple of years ago. If you hadn't read it, I, I really commend it to you. It's one of those soul-stirring, life-giving biographies uh, that, that just really kind of stirs your affections for Christ. I, anyways, one of the saddest parts of the biography, um, and it's sad because I don't, I don't feel like his son was taking a shot at him, but his son um, just kind of recollects how... His father planted the church he pastored in Maryland the same year his son was born. And his son just gives a tragic zinger of a line. His son says, I always viewed that church planted in the same year I was born as as my sibling. And growing up, I felt deep sibling rivalry. Rivalry. Between that church and myself and my dad. I guess what I'm trying to say here is every yes in one direction is a no in the other. You will disappoint somebody. Are you disappointing the right ones? (laughs) Every yes in one direction is a no in the other. And hear me, I'm not calling us to the idolatry of family, which is rampant in people in ministry. I actually think you do your kids a disservice by showing up to all their stuff because you're communicating. You're the center of my world. It's actually harmful to your children's development. My dad, the best thing he ever did for me, he used to literally tell us, we'd get out the, the calendar and he'd schedule stuff and he goes, I'll be at that game, I'll be at that game, I'll be at that game. And then I'd be like, dad, why don't you come to all the games? He goes, because I work. <laughs> you see those cleats? You enjoy those cleats? I work. Man, what a, what a wonderful gift. Your kids are a lot more resilient than what you give them credit for. They'll be okay if you miss a recital. So I'm not saying you should be at everything. What I am saying is you just have to hold intention. Are you really comfortable disappointing your spouse all the time? Disappointing your kids all the time? Jesus didn't just have margin. Thirdly, he actually maximized his margin. Margin is not just this blank sheet of paper. I want to be very careful about that. Just because you have a blank sheet of paper, if that blank sheet of paper doesn't get filled with the right things, we actually call that boredom. And I'm not talking to you about boredom. I'm I'm talking to you about margin. Boredom is the enemy to godliness. Uh, there's an author, you'll, you'll forgive me, I forget the author's name. The author pretty much said uh, there's, three fra- there's three phases to all of our lives. Um, from zero to, your, to our late 20s, somewhere in there, um, the first phase, the key word there is first. Uh, first day of school, first graduation, first job, um, you know, maybe first college degree, um, first. Same author said from like your 50s on through the end of your life, that's the final phase. Um, the key word for that phase is last. Last job, uh, last bit of independence, um, last moments in life, last. The author actually argues the most dangerous part of our lives is that middle part. Somewhere mid to late 30s, on to early 50s or so. The key word for that phase is same. Same job, my case, same marriage, same kids. Same, 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 same. And the author says the reason why most people have a moral implosion in this middle part of their lives like David, is because they never maximize their margin. They, they've got boredom. So what I'm appealing for isn't just, let's just have this blank sheet of paper, blank pockets of time. I, I, I want you actually to actually look at what Jesus does. What does he do with his 40 days of margin? He's praying. He's fasting. He's encountering God. What do we see him doing at the end of our passage as he pulls away to a desolate place? He's just not sitting there with a blank mind. He's seeking God, he's encountering God, he's, he's praying. There's, there's Jesus maximizing his margin. This is where the spiritual practices come in. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of act like this is a sponge. Whenever you take a sponge out of a, out of a package, you don't immediately take that sponge and start putting it to work on the counter. It's dry. It's not the way it works. Sponges are designed to interact with stuff, to get messy. It's pastoral ministry. That's what we're called to. We're called to give ourselves out to interact in the lives of people, and there's mess there. Instead, what we do is we take that new sponge and we immerse it in water. We know what's happening there. That that sponge is getting filled up with water. Now that that thing is filled up because it's withdrawn, now we're ready to put that thing to work. God's called all of us. He's got a call in our lives. He wants to use us to interact in the lives of people. But we will not be effective if we're constantly showing up dry. It's operating from our head. Guys, I've been there. I've been there. In fact, let me just confess to you. This happened to me about six months ago. I I just remember I showed up somewhere to preach. It's just kind of been one of those stretch, uh, you know, just busy seasons. And I... First time ever this happened to me in ministry, I just kind of went to Dropbox, picked something that I was comfortable with, read it a couple times, got up, and literally said to myself as I'm preaching, let's just hurry and get this over with. Whoa. Yeah, Chuck Swindoll, you're right. The scary thing about ministry is you can learn to do it. What margin means is I have to, because when I give myself out over and over again, I'm going to get dry. I have to withdraw. This ain't an elective in pastoral ministry, it's core curriculum. If you're on the worship team, we need you soaking. If you're preaching, we need you soaking. So, what people get is the overflow. That's the spiritual practices. Two things, and I'm done. So this um, this summer our family went away to the beach. We we hung out, and um, my oldest had to get back to work in Arizona after about a week or so. Corey had to get back to her job, and so Corey was gracious to let me just kind of have some time by myself at the beach, and man, just phenomenal, especially being an introvert. Um, just phenomenal, and I just I'm going to maximize this time, man. I long walks in the morning. One of my best friends, Bobby Conway, drove over from Charlotte, man, and we just spent a life-giving 36 hours together just sitting out. And one of our conversations was, man, what's your greatest fear? I mean, just life-giving stuff in the scriptures, reading good books. And then Corey calls me. Um, You know, one of our kids is back home from college, and Jaden's got, he's been used to having the car on his own terms, and this other kid's back, and he's wanting to use the car, and they're just kind of going back and forth, and Corey's like, do something. is what she said, like, just do something. And so I just kind of listened to him, and I, listen, I'm, I'm very careful here. I'm not the model of a great parent. <laughs> Let's just be very clear on here. But, um, man, I got off the phone, and I was kind of high-fiving myself. Um, Kindness was pouring out of me. Patience was pouring out of me. Empathy. Have you ever had moments in your life with Christ? And and it's so sweet. You're like, if I could just bottle that up and put that on repeat. Well, I knew exactly what happened then. What my kids were getting was the overflow of maximized margin. Now we're back to Mulholland. Christ being formed in us for the sake of others. They asked me to share a little bit about what this looks like, and we're about to huddle around in groups. And so when, when I think about when Brian Loritz is most alive... When, when, when I, I literally had the thought, this was a journal exercise that I did a couple weeks ago. Getting off the phone, refereeing this argument over the car, full of joy and empathy and compassion. I literally journaled, what's going on in my soul? Because I want to keep that. Because ministry's tough. Folk talk about you behind your back. Folk do stuff. And it's real easy to just go, I want to knock you in your face right now. So how do I I just engage that? Let me just give you a couple things as we get ready for our time around the table. Uh, Number one, for me, it's kind of a consistent lingering time with Jesus. Early on, I kind of bought this lie, and I had youth pastors tell me this. um, um, Quality isn't quantity. The older I get, the more of a lie that is. Um, I just sensed the Spirit of God saying to me a couple years ago, he wants an hour out of me every single day just in prayer. I don't do that perfectly, um, but it's just a regular rhythm. And the alarm clock for me goes off at about 5 a.m. for me. I'm just naturally a morning person, so I want to be sensitive to how you're wired. Some of you, your best time's at night. That's not me. So I'm not being legalistic about this, but... Man, when I get that hour with the Lord, and, and there's times in which Corey and I get snippy with each other, and um, she doesn't help it out because she'll go, "Ooh, you haven't had your time with Jesus yet, have you?" And I'm like, "Not helpful." Um, but there's just something when I'm lingering with Jesus in that intentional hour for a consistent stretch, my family gets the fruit. Fruit of that. Uh, number two, again, I'm just. This is me. This is me. Those sweet moments of my life where I just feel like I'm, I'm bringing the best of myself, I'm not binge-watching Netflix. This is for me. I know y'all can do it. I can't. I never binge-watch Netflix coming back just full of Jesus. Now, Is there a place for TV? Absolutely. If you come to my house, I got some TVs. But in those sweet moments, when I look at the common denominator, TV just doesn't have a loud, prominent place in my life. Third, Sabbath delight. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, Janetta was so spot on as she's talking about the place of our cell phones or whatever. Um, thing when I read the scriptures, you could always just tell a Jewish field by two things. Number one, they, they, they didn't reap to the edges of their field, so there was margin. Everybody else reaped to the edges, but you could always tell a Jewish field because there was these, this margin, literal margin in the field. But two, you could tell because everybody else is working seven days a week. They're only working six, and so there's just this communal thing. Oh, nobody's there. must be a Jewish field. I just got to thinking, what would it look like if the body of Christ just said, one day of the week, we're not touching our cell phones. And there's a group of us walking through the, through the Atlanta airport, you know, because we got a connecting flight. By the way, someone once said that the way to hell will have a connecting flight in Atlanta. But we're just kind of going through Atlanta. And people are going, those, those must be Christians. I don't see cell phones. Again, don't want to be legalistic about that. But just thinking through what Sabbath means and trying to do that. Fourthly, minimal phone. Fifth, for me, it's playing. Find a hobby, and unashamedly, hobby well. Find something that gives you life and put it on repeat. Fifth, let me just park here for a moment. It's, for me, it's, it's rich community. Let me just show you a couple pictures of, of people that I just do life with. That far in right there. That's most of the guys in a small group that I've been in um, 25 years. 25 years just doing life, we're we're on a a group me text together, and man, it's, it's, we get in each other's face. Like, we open up our finances, here's what's going on debt-wise. One of these guys, uh, we found out that he's going through a divorce, didn't tell us. We literally hopped on planes from all over the country and jammed him up in the name of the Spirit of God, like, bro, what's going on here? How in the world are you going through a divorce, and you call me your boy, and we don't know about it? Another guy, he's not in the picture. We just found out he got diagnosed with um, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a three year death sentence. I just talked to him the other day, and man, he sounds like he just had a stroke. But these guys are sources of life to me. Rich community. In the middle there, those are all my sons in the ministry, who I call my pallbearers. They're going to carry me to my grave. We've been doing life for 20 years. None of those guys have have dads who are engaged in their life. We're in Montana. They'd never been to Montana before. Um, Most of them had never been fishing before. One of them was screaming to the top of his lungs when he caught a trout because he didn't know how to take it off. Every morning, we start off with about three hours of prayer. Each person just shares what's going on in their lives, then we lay hands on them. There's just something about giving your life away to other people. I don't know what the shelf life is on a great sermon, but it ain't got nothing compared to giving your life away to others. And then there's a group of pastors, they just this is a, a new group, um, they just invited me in and um, they said, hey man, we're, we're in the process of taking vows together um, to just do life and encourage each other in the way of Jesus. Uh, every Thursday we fast together, we do the spiritual practices together, we check in on each other. Um, life giving. Let me wrap up here. Uh, pockets of furlough. What does that mean? Uh, people are surprised. I've kind of gotten known as the reconciliation guy. Um, I love being in spaces like this, feel called to summit, love being here. Um, but culturally, the way the gospel is encased in this environment, it's not my heart language. Um, and it can wear on me. I definitely love you guys. But I have to give myself permission um, to take little pockets of furlough, just like a missionary does, and to be with people I ain 't got a code switch with, I don 't have to put up kind of any kind of walls with. I can just fully engage. seven minimal secular music um, I don 't put jazz in that category, surely that's not secular. Um, again, me just kind of binge listening to Drake. Jay-Z, I don't leave there going full of the Spirit of God, not being legalistic. Finally, weekly fasting. Um, I've been lamenting that this is just something I've gotten to later on in life. But when I'm in this regular rhythm, I'm at my best. We want to spend some time around the tables now and just um, uh, maybe, Douglas, you want to, I don't know if you want to come give more input into this, but uh, maybe have a discussion about uh, your practices. I want you to maybe think of, maybe the starting place to this is when you just feel like, man, I'm at my best, this thing called the abundant life, it's just pulsating through me to others. What's going on in your soul that's setting the grounds for that? What are the habits? What are the practices? And then Douglas, you feel free to add whatever you need to, to that.